0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. This is a show that explores individual and interpersonal dynamics, helping you become your best self while making the most of your business and the people in it. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it, enjoy the show this week i'm joined by marcy tweet marcy is a recognized leader in corporate social responsibility and sustainability for multinational fortune 500 companies and has a background both broad and deep in esg ethical decision making marketing and communications she is the founder and CEO of Marcy Tweet Consulting, where she advises corporations of all sizes, their investors, and key partners on environmental, social, and governance risks and reputation management. In this conversation, we get into a really interesting topic. Marcy starts by defining some terms, things like sustainability, corporate responsibility, ESG, CSR, and, and several others. Uh, we get into what the work actually looks like and how companies can get started. And we talk about the overlap between some of these issues and the people issues that go on within a, a business. We talk about the ROI of getting some of this stuff right. It was a fascinating conversation. Marcy is an absolute expert when it comes to all of these topics. Without further ado, here is Marcy Tweet. And we are live with Marcy Tweet. Marcy, welcome to the show. Thanks,
1: O'Brien. Glad to be here.
0: Uh, Interested to explore your professional domain here. Uh, This isn't a topic that I've explored on here before, and I think it's an interesting one. To start off, would you, let's just like define some terms, would you just define what sustainability and corporate responsibility are?
1: Sure. So, sustainability and corporate responsibility are some terms that get frequently interchanged, and there's a lot of different functions within a corporation that might fit in those two terms. So you might also hear terms like community relation or corporate purpose or CSR for corporate social responsibility. And then what we've heard over the last few years is ESG, environmental, social, and governance function. Um, But generally what any sort of name all of those names department within a corporation is, is the department that's responsible for... The corporation's impact outside of the four walls of the corporation. So, how does a corporate footprint impact a community surrounding its facilities? How does it impact? The, the stakeholders that are external to their organization are really in, internal as well um, because we certainly consider employees an important stakeholder. But a lot of people in the sustainability and corporate responsibility world, I think ESG is the best way to really understand it. It's the environmental issues that a corporation has. It's the social issues that a corporation has, either positively or negative. And it's the governance issues, which might include things like diversity and inclusion or board diversity Or corporate reporting and sustainability reporting. I like to think of us as kind of the moral compass of a company, baking into the DNA of the company real sustainability across the board, not just in terms of environmental sustainability, but making sure that our businesses are sustainable and can continue to do the great work that they do in an ongoing basis and have a positive impact on our stakeholders.
0: Thank you for that definition. That was great what's the origin story for this work though? Like where, where did this come from? When did this start to be a thing?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, CSR really evolved out of, um, even out of post-World War II. So in post-World War II, kind of reconstruction era, there was a real expectation of corporations to give back to their community. And that's really when corporate philanthropy began, when corporations started to have large foundations that invested in education or environmental causes or in infrastructure in their communities. And then over the course of the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, we saw that begin to evolve into what was traditionally called corporate social responsibility. And again, it's been that continuing evolution toward including more frameworks in that, not just social, but bringing in environmental and diversity and governance and reporting. And alongside our field becoming more and more sophisticated corporate in general has become more and more sophisticated. And there's really been this movement when you think about the assets of a corporation. In World War II, sort of post-World War II era, 90% of the assets of a corporation were hard assets, right? They were equipment, they were buildings, they were the infrastructure that corporation had. Today, that number has flipped entirely. Most of the assets of a corporation, I think the number most recently is about 80%. Most assets a corporation has today are intangible assets. They're IP, they're, they're people, Their technology. They're not things like, you know, I've, I formerly worked for a steel company. So steel is a really heavy, tangible asset business. But when you look at somebody like Facebook, right... intangible assets. And we've had this real shift in business to understanding the difference between tangible and intangible and the expectations have changed for corporations along the same spectrum.
0: So how has that changed expectations?
1: We expect corporations today to be much more involved, much more open, much more transparent. Um, There's a great writer out of London, David Matten. He's one of my favorite people. He's a great LinkedIn newsletter that he does every week that's fantastic about technology and sustainability. And he talks about the rise of the glass box company. And that in the, you know, go back to the 1980s, companies were like airplane black boxes. We never knew what went wrong until things crashed, right? Look at Enron, right? We're 20 years today from the collapse of Enron, I think is is where we are. And or. Yeah, my, I think that was... I saw the, the anniversary come through. We didn't know what happened to Enron until everything went bad. And we had to like examine the black box of the airplane. Today, stakeholders, customers, investors, employees expect corporations to be more glass box. We want to see what's happening inside them. We want to know what their values are before we purchase, before we take the job, before we invest in the company. And that's just a very different story than it was 20 or 30 years ago.
0: I get that that's what customers are wanting now. I get that we've kind of evolved to that. You know, you can kind of feel that out there. Why should companies care about that in the first place? Did this arise from a, like a business need or did it arise from a really a philanthropic place and we've kind of evolved from there? Because I a lot of this stuff is more of the feel-good stuff. And I would just be curious, like, is there is there really a business case To why companies should be doing this, or is it altruistic? Like, where's the balance there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's both. And, you know, when we go back again to the kind of evolution of CSR at the beginning, it certainly was pushed by whether it be CEOs or boards of directors or high level leaders who wanted to do what was right for the world who wanted to you know there's there's this old paradigm that that still exists today of the triple bottom line of people planet profit and that if we're just focusing on profit and not on sort of the human aspect or or the environmental aspect of things we're really leaving really important aspects of what we do behind and so that is part of it but today it's become a very important commentary on two things in terms of ROI one If you are a consumer-facing company and you aren't thinking about the carbon footprint of your product, if you're not thinking about how to make your product safer, more accessible, better understandable by your consumer, what's in your product, how is it made, you're going to fall behind in terms of revenue because that's what the consumer wants. The consumer wants to know what's in the things we are putting in our bodies, that we are feeding to our children, that we are having in our homes, that we're driving around in our cars. We want to know how those things are made. And there's been that real shift in in consumer activism and consumer understanding. So that's one side of the why does this make sense financially coin. The other side of the why does this make sense financially coin is about risk and corporations have understood risk for a long time they've understood financial risk certainly but take a look at some of the biggest corporate disasters of the last let's say 15 or 20 years deepwater horizon at bp the tailpipe emission scandal at volkswagen right those were not straight financial disasters those were environmental and social disasters and what companies have gotten hip to over the last to 10 to 15 years is that when you include environmental, social, and governance risk in your risk management frameworks, you are ahead of the game in terms of financial risk across the board because these risks are big risks. It, you know, The Volkswagen scandal cost Volkswagen $18 billion, I think is the number on what that costs. Deepwater Horizon is close to, if not over $100 billion in what it costs BP over the course of the years following. Those are huge risks that come out of the kind of ESG spectrum. You know, I think COVID has been a spotlight on some of the risk management practices of big corporations. I will say this with a little bit of a grain of salt, so don't think that I'm speaking for Target but, you know, we all showed it for Target two weeks after, the of, after COVID launched, and they had all the stanchions in place, all the plastic stanchions around. They didn't order those, right? They had them. Because Target had in place, and a lot of big companies had in place, full pandemic plans, They saw this coming. They had it in their risk models going into the pandemic. And companies that had planned for these kind of macro risks on a social and environmental and governance impact spectrum did better through the pandemic. And they, you know, better with their stockholders, better with their customers, better with their, you know, Uh, stakeholders better with the media. And we're going to see that continue. And I think a lot of companies that didn't have those strong risk management practices in place or hadn't planned for a pandemic are now sitting back. I get a lot of calls from clients and potential clients sitting back saying, okay, what's the next big macro issue? What's coming next? Is it a price on carbon? Is it, you know, major environmental disaster? Is it climate disasters like hurricanes and floods? What's coming next and how do we prepare for it? Because maybe we didn't prepare coming into a pandemic.
0: So, just to reiterate what you're saying there, make sure that I understand it. So, it's, I think what you're saying, and this is kind of where my head was going too, as you were giving your previous answer, is like that while an environmental issue is an environmental issue, it's also a risk management issue. And if you're not as a company thinking about how what you do is impacting the environment, your people, there's there's a gap somewhere where something bad is going to happen and you're going to be caught exposed.
1: Right. I mean, look at, you know, over the last few years sort of the me too movement and you know on in one example of that what happened at uber with the women of uber kind of rising up and and going to the media and talking about what was happening internal i was one of those people who switched from uber to lyft almost overnight they saw a mass exodus of customers almost overnight because of what was happening inside uber that they hadn't thought those issues through so when someone looks at diversity and inclusion yes there's there's tons of roi for diversity and inclusion but if you look at the way you're treating let's say women for instance in your company if you're treating women consistently historically badly inside your company, it's going to come back to bite you and you will lose customers over it. And you have to think those risks
0: through. Yeah. And I guess, you know, nobody would say, oh, well, we're going to treat women badly here. Right? Like, like, I don't think anybody would sit there and proactively make that decision.
1: But there are a lot of companies, there are a lot of companies that say, I know there's a problem inside my company with women, with people of color, without L- the LGBTQ community, whatever the whatever the spectrum is or all of the above. And they say to themselves, I'm choosing not to solve it. I yes. have been in those conversations and those conversations include uh, occur all the time. So to me saying, yeah, we're going to treat women badly is the same thing saying yeah. I'm not going to solve this problem for women is the same as saying I'm making a business decision to treat women badly.
0: Yes, I I agree with you. And that was where I was going, was like, it's not that they're sitting there saying, like, actually articulating, we're going to treat women badly. But the decisions that they're making are having the impact that is treating women badly or fill in the blank issue. So not dealing with the issue is not like sweeping it under the rug doesn't work because it will blow up eventually, as we've seen with a number of social issues and environmental issues over the last twenty years, it all comes out in the wash, as they say, right? So you get you you just said you get a lot of phone calls from people. Who, you know, where do companies start? Like when somebody calls you and is like, "What's next? We don't have anything. What are we doing here?" Like, where do you suggest companies start to build this out? Because it's a broad spectrum of things they could be looking at.
1: It is. And I think that's the scary um, the scary thing about this, this sort of sustainability and corporate responsibility world. I think there are a lot of companies that know they need to be thinking about these issues and a lot of companies that just feel like they don't have the bandwidth, they don't have the time, they don't know how to build a department. Um, should they build a department? I think, you know, I work with huge corporations, the Fortune 500, Fortune 100 but the most number of sort of new clients, new calls I've gotten over the last year have been from what I would call mid-sized companies. So not the S and P five hundred, mid-sized companies that are saying, "Okay, we get it. We see the writing on the wall. We know we have to do something." But again, where do we start? I always tell people start a couple of places. So. When I come in as a consultant, one of the first things I do with any client are are two things. One, an internal um, sort of basic audit of what they're already doing because the truth is there's no such thing as a company that has no altruistic work going on inside of it. Every company has really good things happening inside of it. Maybe it's a manager in their supply chain department who's taking it taking it upon themselves to do some work to get more um, women and minority-owned suppliers. Maybe there's a group inside the, the company that has done a lot of fundraising for a specific charity. They're always things that are there. And so the first thing is to find the things that are there and begin to track and understand them and to put them into a strategy of sorts. Um, I think if you start trying to set a CSR strategy, like let's have a meeting with all of our our big CEOs and, you know, all the big, you know, sort of big dogs in our company and set a strategy without having a look at what's actually happening on the ground in your company, what's really going on. And then the second thing I always tell people to look at is benchmark your peers and competitors and not necessarily just those in your industry. What I often tell my clients is, look at a company that's in a completely different industry than you are, but they are in a similar stage to you. They might have a similar number of employees. They might be at a similar stage of business, whether they're 10 years in or they're 2 years from IPO or whatever that might look like. Look at a huge array of companies and what are they doing in your area? And take what you can that will work for you from some of those companies. You'll get great ideas. Find a North Star in your industry. You know, If you are a consumer-facing company that sells a lot of consumer product, Look to the big dogs in this space like Unilever, look at Etsy, look at, you know, Target as a great example of folks that have fantastic sustainability and corporate responsibility and then pick some of those things that they're doing and try to get on board and try to get, you know, involved and follow those models because the models exist in the world for all of this. None of you have to rewrite the the sort of sustainability and corporate responsibility model to be exactly perfect right away. So look at what others are doing and piggyback on that. And then the third thing I always say to people is, even if it's a very small process, our field does what are called materiality studies. And a materiality study would take a corporation through the process of determining which issues are most important to your stakeholders about you. So, you know, great example, if you are a professional services firm, you generally probably don't have a massive environmental footprint unless you're, you know, Accenture and McKinsey and you're on planes every single day. But if you're a small professional services firm, you probably don't have a massive environmental footprint. Environmental sustainability is probably not going to be top on your list of materiality issues. It might be in there because that's important and all corporations need to think about it. But for a professional services firm, what might be the top of your materiality issues are more like, human rights and how you treat your employees, diversity and inclusion. And so I encourage all of my clients and any corporation that's thinking about sustainability and corporate responsibility, do a materiality study, even if it's as simple as a quick survey to your employees or to some of your customers to find out what's important to them and what issues do they want to see you working on. And
0: who generally is owning this work. So and, and I guess it'd be good to get it from a range of companies. So you've got the large companies, let's say the large companies have their own departments doing this and we'll exclude them for the moment. If they if you aren't large enough or you haven't built out your own team for this, where does it generally fall?
1: It's a that's a good question and the answer is there's not a specific answer. You'll find it in HR at certain companies, especially companies like I just mentioned, like a professional services firm, insurance companies, you'll often find it sitting within HR. Um, For a company that's very consumer facing, you might find corporate responsibility sitting more within marketing communications or even in the sales and marketing department. For companies that are very finance heavy, you might find it sitting under the CFO. I'm working with a couple of new clients now that have this function sitting under investor relations or sort of within the CFOs office with companies that have a large supply chain and and don't manufacture a lot themselves, but they have a lot of supply chain, you might find it sitting within supply chain. I always tell people it's who is poised in your company to do the work. The biggest thing about sustainability and corporate responsibility as a job, whether you're in a massive company and you are the chief sustainability officer or you work for a chief sustainability officer or you're in a small company, we work in a field that has very little authority, and we have to make our way through a company from department to department, from conference room to conference room, from meeting to meeting, because no matter what the company is, whether you have a board responsible chief sustainability officer or not, it's about getting everyone in the company to adopt sustainability practices So I can't be successful as a leader in sustainability if supply chain doesn't do their job, if sales doesn't do their job, if marketing doesn't do their job. If everybody doesn't accept this as something the company really believes in, I can sit on my high horse in the sustainability office all day and it doesn't matter. So to me, if you're starting... a function of some sort in sustainability and corporate responsibility, I would say who in your company, which department, or even which person or group of people is highly connected? What are What's the heart of the company? And who would you say, that person really knows everybody, people trust that person, people trust that department, and give it to them? Because they're the ones who will go out and get a lot of that sort of initial work done of bringing people on board with this process.
0: So it was, it was interesting because you, you kind of, my head went to a certain place and then you kind of went there yourself, which is this really has to be woven into the fabric of the business. If it's going to be sustainable for the business. And so do you see clients working this into their values? Do you, how do you see them making it part of that fabric?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think their values, their mission statements, um, really who they are as a business. You know, I always say the biggest enabler for sustainability in any company is a bought in CEO. Um, you know Michael Dell is one of my favorite people on the planet. I think he just gets it. he's been an incredible sustainable CEO. you know Michael Dell told his supply chain folks and and all of his manufacturers he wanted to be able to eat his own packaging and he can I've seen him do it it's kind of fun. and I think that kind of inspiration from the c-suite is really important um, that helps to bake this into the DNA. You know, I think we see a lot of big companies, Apple, most recently announcing that they are tying executive compensation to sustainability goals. That kind of thread is incredibly important because we all know what gets measured gets managed and, you know, what gets paid gets managed even more. So it's, you know, it's all of those things that come together. But yeah, I mean... It's interesting. I've heard a lot of people in sustainability, I I don't necessarily ascribe to this this kind of notion, but a lot of people say my job is to put myself out of business, right? That every department is so so ingrained in sustainability that we don't need a chief sustainability officer. I don't necessarily buy that because I personally see a chief sustainability officer or head of sustainability as kind of the company's futurist on sustainability. So even if the company does everything right, I think your job as a head of sustainability is to then be five years out and 10 years out thinking about what's coming. But yeah, I mean, ultimately you want this to be everyone's responsibility and not just one department's.
0: Yeah. If there's one lesson in human history, it's that we've never arrived. There's always new things coming. We're always learning more. There's always more more to be done.
1: Well, that's I have a... I have a you know, deck of, of slides that I kind of give if somebody asks me to give a talk about sustainability. And one of the slides is kind of the, the current cycle of innovation in sustainability. And, and how I talk about it is the way people see it is there's some sort of impetus, right? You're at the status quo. There's some sort of impetus to change, whether it's build a sustainability department for the first time. And then we sort of build and set strategy, and then we achieve a new status quo, Now, what needs to happen is a cycle of constant innovation, of never bringing yourself to that status quo. But theres it's a real push. And and I've been there. I've been there when I was inside companies as the head of sustainability of someone saying, you did it. Like You you built this thing and it works. So just run it now. And it's very hard not to say, wait, 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 we built it for right now, but that's not what's going to work in 10 years or it's not going to work you know in 15 years and i think sometimes that paradigm shift is really hard for ceos and cfos to get their brains around that we're never done and you know the system is never built and never finished and so i think that's you know that constant innovation is something that i would i would encourage everybody to have an eye towards
0: how do you do that right how do you keep it how do you build a process so that you're always evolving and you don't get to that arrival moment where you sort of fall into the new status quo?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's constantly setting new goals. It's looking at places to have continuous and iterative change, right? So if you've sat across a sustainability strategy, let's say, you know, a few key pillars that are your major focus areas. It might be that it's kind of a year one, year two, year three, year four. You always come back and go, okay, this year we're going to refocus on, on this. What are we missing? What's not right here? How do we iterate and get to the next level? I think too often, and this is true of every department in every company all over the world, we do the same thing because we we've done it all along, right? Why do we write... 180 page sustainability report well because last year our sustainability report was 180 pages you know why do we why do we keep doing the same thing over and over and over again and i think having that moment at least every couple of years where you sit down with a team and say what if we threw it all out what would it look like today what if we went back to the drawing board you know i had an old old boss years and years ago in the nonprofit sector who said if it's not broke break it And sometimes (laughs) that works and sometimes it doesn't. But sometimes you have to look at it and say, maybe this thing we built five years ago doesn't work today. And you see a lot of companies doing that right now, big companies. So um, CVS, great example, rewrote their goals, wrote 2030 goals. A lot of companies are doing 2030 goals right now. And I think that's a good way when you, whether you approach a new decade or it happens a lot when companies get a new CEO. Right, new CEO comes in, you rewrite the strategy, and I think that's that's true across the board. So it's that finding those inflection points to say, is this a point where we could back up and relook at this?
0: Yeah, you know, it makes me think about my work too, which is not in sustainability, but it's in mainly in uh, employee benefits consulting, and we have to renew a client's medical program every year. And the thing that I see kill broker-client relationships more often than anything else is staleness. It's just you you do some great work up front, you sort of get things set, and then you just run the program, you manage the renewals, and you kind of fall into this comfort zone. And inevitably, a number of years down the road, they say, yeah, you know, I just am feeling like I'm not getting what I need from my partner. And I get a phone call and I get a new business opportunity, right? And when it's not like anything's wrong, they've just gotten complacent. And so I think a lot about that. And we have put together a process and and I manage that process for my clients to make sure that part of the process is that every year we go back and we say, what about your business has changed? What about your philosophies has changed? What about your culture? Like. How much of this do we need to rewrite? And how much of this do we need to keep? And the reality is most of it gets kept most of the time, but it allows you to catch those things, those little changes that are going to lead to some big change down the road. You get out ahead of that stuff and it feels hopefully it feels fresh. And it's just like it seems like that's similar to what you're talking about. Like you got to build it into the process. And maybe that's every year or maybe it's like every two or three years where it's like, yeah, we've gone through this thing. We built this thing. And now remember, this is our process. So this is this is just what we do. We go back and we look at it again.
1: Yeah, and I think it's it's the job of corporate responsibility and sustainability professionals to ask the critical questions at every turn to push that change. Um, Again, I hate to kind of harp on Volkswagen because I actually think they do incredible work and they're doing really well after the crisis um, that they went through a number of years ago. But I'm a huge geek about sustainability reporting. If you want to learn about a company, read their sustainability report. They can be very boring and they can be 180 pages long. But in there, there's a lot of stuff you need to know if you really want to know a company. And what came out after Volkswagen's emissions scandal was about three years before in Volkswagen's sustainability report, they just stopped talking about tailpipe emissions. They had talked about it every year leading up to that. And about three years before, they just stopped talking about it. Now, I don't blame the sustainability people necessarily in that, but I know exactly what happened. I know there was some guy in some department that knew kind of what was going on. And when he submitted his data to the sustainability department, he said, you know what, like, let's take out all this stuff about tailpipe. We don't really need to talk about that anymore. And someone who sat in a seat like I sit in didn't ask the question and didn't say, why? What's going on here? Now, not to say that anybody in the sustainability office at Volkswagen could have like stopped what was going on and prevented it. That's not necessarily the truth. But it's the internal culture of being able to say, wait a minute, why did we change that? Why doesn't why doesn't that work anymore? Why aren't we asking? why this customer left why aren't we having these conversations you know there's a, another company in the the fortune 20 that recently started requiring a board exit interview if a woman or a person of color leaves at a certain level of the company or above it was like vp and up and they put that check in place to say if we are losing diverse candidates at this level we got to get involved all the way up to the board level. And those are the kinds of like cultural question asking things that I think sustainability and corporate responsibility has to be really in tune with to continue that always innovating, always iterating kind of kind of culture internally.
0: So you hit on a topic there that I'm really interested in right now. And I'm trying to find the right guest to come on to talk about this, but you went there. So let's let's go there. Self-policing. How many news stories have we seen over the last two or three years where the issue was a group couldn't self-police itself and lo and behold, there's this, you know, becomes a systemic issue and there's a big blow up in, in all kinds of different areas. And what you're talking about, like the Volkswagen example, like, let's say there was somebody sitting there who had that opportunity to speak up and didn't like, that's a hard position to be in. There's a ton of peer pressure. Could there could be a ton of peer pressure, you know, the financial pressure, which is probably also peer pressure. It takes a lot of fortitude to stand up and say that stuff. So I don't know if I have a question there as much as I would be curious about your observations just in in the role of your department, but also really any department to be able to have these conversations? And how do you do, how do you have these tough conversations effectively?
1: Well, I mean, the, the short answer on some of that is a lot of people don't. And a lot of people who have worked jobs like I've worked are, are let go because they're the squeaky wheel. I've been there and I get it. And so that's one of those things where you have to walk a fine line. But that's where I would hearken back as well to the real enablers of CEOs. So one of my favorite people on the planet is former CEO of Baxter, Harry Kramer. Um, He writes, he's written two or three books on values-based leadership and harry is one of those people and he's he's talked very very openly about this so i'm not spilling any tea on baxter about when he first became ceo at baxter and this was true at that time i think it was in the early to mid 90s that there was a lot of bribery going on in medical device around the world and we're not just talking about like you know buying doctors dinners but there were there was a lot of bribery in medical device and harry said we're done Baxter will not engage in this practice globally, period. And he talks really openly about the conversations he's had with people in, you know, calling him from across the world saying, listen, Harry, like we lose, we can't operate in this country if we don't do this. And that Harry said, okay, great, then we'll pack up and we'll bring you home. Because if we can't operate in that country without doing it, without bribery, without some of the practices that our competitors might do, then it's okay. And we will pack up and we'll bring you home. And guess what? Those guys always found a way to operate in that country without without crossing the lines that Harry set up for them. And that's the truth of a CEO who makes whistleblowing at the highest level, but speaking up every day at the lowest level, safe. That if your CEO says, no, 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 I actually care what you think. At every single level in this organization, I really have an open door policy. And you can tell me when things are going wrong. You can get an audience with the board. You can get an audience with senior vice presidents and executive vice presidents and the people who are at the top. Companies that do that well, and unfortunately, I think they're kind of few and far between, but companies who do that well are the best sustainability players on the planet. Because they do have people who can speak up and who can feel safe in speaking up and asking those hard questions. But it's hard to do. And big ships are hard to turn. And it takes a long time and a lot of effort and a lot of people.
0: What do you say to the person who doesn't necessarily feel that comfortable speaking up or who doesn't feel like the CEO is all the way there yet?
1: Yeah, I would say build allies internally and find the right people who also think the way you think. And I've been there. I, I you know, I worked in the world's largest steel company. As you can imagine, there are not a lot of women <laughs> in the company that I worked for. Developing those allies of other people who will have your back, who will help bring those issues to the CEO as a group and not as one young woman squeaky wheel is really important. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And this is another reason, it's another kind of ROI when CEOs or, or, you know, C-suiters in general are thinking about sustainability and corporate responsibility and impact. Because the truth is, if that person, no matter where they are in the organization, over and over and over feels, I don't have the cultural safety to speak up when I see something wrong, you're going to lose them. You're going to lose. And that's good talent the people who see things that are wrong and want to help to fix them, across the board, that's good talent. And you're going to lose good talent at every turn if you're not willing to listen to them. So it's a two-sided coin where I would say, first, try to develop your allies internally. See if you can get a group of people together who can be heard about an organization and what's going on inside or what the challenges are, what the changes might need to be. And then secondly, if you find yourself constantly up against a wall and banging your head against a wall, whether it's with a CEO or with your boss, leave and go somewhere. There are a lot of companies in the world who know how important environmental, social, and governance impact are to employees. And they're trying to do it right. And there are places where you can be, where you can feel that you are making money and making a difference and making impact. Find the company that's a better fit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's good advice. And I I think oftentimes people will try to figure out or fix or learn how to manage the situation they're in, not really realizing that they have the power to change the situation they're in by just leaving and going somewhere else.
1: It's funny that uh, Van Jones said a a version of this on on CNN the other night, talking about police and racism and and some of the things that are going on. But actually my ethics professor, Adam Waits at, at Kellogg, Always says there's no such thing as bad apples. There's only bad barrels. Van Jones said there's only bad trees, you know? And at some level, that's true. Um, If the barrel is bad, it's really hard to change unless there's wholesale change happening at board and senior management level. It's very hard to change from the bottom up. And so, you know, when you're in those situations, you've got to step back and have a real honest conversation with yourself about whether or not you're in a bad barrel and is it time to go? And I think those companies, I think it will catch up to them in terms of stock price, in terms of consumer buy-in, in terms of customers, it will catch up with them. And I think in the long term, companies that treat their employees well and think about the community that they live and work in are going to have the upper hand in terms of the market as well. I think capitalism matches as time goes on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It might happen slowly. Or you might see nothing for a long period of time, and that. But I mean, look at everything that's been happening over the last five years, right? Harvey Weinstein got away with a lot for a long time, and then all of a sudden, he wasn't getting away with any of it anymore. You know, it it all blew up at once, and so, yeah, they, I I believe in that too. Like things come back. How you know what you put out in the world comes back, eventually. There's another point in there that you in what you explain too that I think is important to touch on if you are a leader who uncovers that something has happened or who has somebody come to you with a concern about some of this stuff is that a hundred percent of the time, it seems like that's going to be unwelcome information because it's going to be hard. It's going to mean that you're going to have to do something hard. You're going to have to change something like there's, there's disruption and pain that comes along with all of this stuff. And let I mean, you can do the pre work, and that's why people should do the pre work. But let's say something does come up, it's always going to come with some sign, some kind of angst or negative emotion, and that I think is what what creates a bunch of problems. Is then people don't want to deal with that, and they shut it down. They they don't want to deal with the hard thing, and so they they put it off or they try a, a quick fix. And I think the more leaders recognize that because something is hard and feels stressful, that that probably means it's the thing they need to do.
1: Yeah. And I think there are, you know, issues that are incredibly black and white and there are issues that are more gray. And I think that's when it gets harder. We get down to the gray areas when someone, when a staff member comes to you and says, you know, so-and-so said something really inappropriate in this meeting. Like it's easy to go, Oh gosh, that's just Joe. He says blah blah blah. Let's let it go, right? Like that's a very different issue than when someone comes to you and says like Joe slapped my butt in the break room today. Right? There it's like there are black and white issues and there are gray issues and I think the thing we have to do in corporate culture is make the gray more black and white. Like it has to be clear from the top down, what's expected and what is not tolerated. And I think that's that's the big thing. When you see... So I'll give you an example from my time at ArcelorMiddle, and I can say this because it's been well publicized. It was a huge um, court case from the US EPA. We had a staff member, a, a management staff member, do an illegal environmental workaround on an emission system in one of our facilities. He was walked out that day. The day it was found out, he was walked out, never re-entered the facility again, was fired immediately. Those are black and white issues. And that kind of decision-making from a CEO, from a CEO's team of saying, no, 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 we're not wait and see. You leave now, today, has shown every other employee in the company that there's no gray area when it comes to EPA regulation. If you mess with it, we walk you out that day. And I think those are hard lines that are sometimes easier to draw in certain companies. But the more you see a CEO draw those hard lines on real issues related to, you know, sexual harassment or unethical behavior, any of those kinds of things that go along, the more as a company you become more culturally attuned to that. And the less hard it is to say, oh, well, let's just let that slide under the table.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I work with a leadership coach and a group within our organization. And one of the things that we talk about is as if you want to be an effective leader, you have to be okay with other people being uncomfortable. And, you know, you have to know that part of leadership is making hard decisions that are going to make people uncomfortable. Just two more questions, because I know we're getting to the end of time here. The name of this show is People Business. And so we've kind of we've touched on some of the people stuff, but I would just be curious sort of from a high level, what are the biggest people issues that you see companies dealing with today that that have a big impact?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, first and foremost, it's it's intersectionality and the ability for employees to feel that they can bring their whole selves to work. Um, the days of employees, you know, clocking in at nine, leaving at five and, and really not thinking about work anywhere outside of their you know, their office are just gone. And employees want to know that they can feel good about the work they do every day and that they feel that the work and the purpose of the company that they're working for aligns with their values and their purpose. And so I think that's the biggest thing is allowing your employees to be who they are and accepting that real level of... It it is a diversity issue across the board, um, not just in the sense of, Making sure that we are have equal representation of sexes, of races, of of you know different kinds of um, you know whatever it may be, but it's everyone feeling that they can feel safe and accepted and bring themselves to work in a way that feels important to them, that in a way that helps them cultivate personal happiness and personal purpose and that might sound a little woo woo but it's that's the truth of i think what we all want in our in our jobs is to feel like we are doing something that makes us feel more of ourselves and more connected to the values that we believe in so i think that's i think that's number 1 of what i see happening out of this N- number 2 is just transparency and honesty with employees All of us have been in those situations where you find out that like Susie down the hall is making way more money than you for the same job and all the kinds of things that happen. And that breeds anger and resentment. It breeds issues inside your teams, inside your company. I think we want companies to be more transparent. We want them to tell us what works, what doesn't, what's possible, what's not as employees. And if you do that, you will have retention for a long, long time. I had a friend who, unfortunately, her husband lost his mother and he worked for Google. And Google HR went so far as to help, or he had had lost his father. Google HR went so far as to help his mother access the resources inside her company for bereavement, for an ongoing employee services. Like that HR person had a conversation with someone who wasn't even their employee. Like that guy's a Google employee for life, man. Like when a company steps up for you in a time when you have had something horrible happen in your life and they say, we'll do anything we can to help you. And they really mean it. I mean that that saves employees for life. And I yeah. think those are the things like be transparent with us, tell us what's possible, give us the real deal, and be human and honest. And I think that's that's the the bottom line when it comes to responsibility and sustainability and purpose and employees.
0: I love it. Last question. What in your mind is the purpose of business?
1: So I love that you ask everyone this question. And I it's I wrote my Entrance essay to Kellogg with this cut with this the answer to this question. And it's not my own personal thought, it's Dory McWarders from the CEO of the YWCA in Chicago. The purpose of business is to move society forward. And I believe that more than I believe anything in the world. And no one manufactures widgets just to manufacture widgets, right? whatever you do whatever you make whatever service you provide in your business is to move us forward as a whole because you think someone really needs that product or you know someone really needs that service in their life in their business in their company in their you know in their home whatever it might be we all want to move society forward and that's i believe that so strongly and that's how i believe in the connection between ESG and and sustainability and the work that companies do, I'm a big fan. People kind of laugh at me. A lot of my friends know I'm kind of geeky about the movie Wall Street. I love Gordon Gecko. Greed is good. Capitalism is good. You can have social purpose and moving society forward, and also be capitalist and and greedy and want to make money. And I think that's that's what we have to do is align those two issues. So if companies are moving society forward let's make them do it to the best of their ability.
0: I love it. Marcy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, You are an absolute expert in what you do. And uh, and this was a great conversation. I I really appreciate it. As I said at the beginning, it's a topic that doesn't get talked about as much in the people circles, but I think it's a really interesting and important one as, as we've outlined here. So thank you.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed this episode, the biggest thing you could do to support the show is send it to a friend or colleague who you think would enjoy it too. Just hit that little share button and send it their way. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.